When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did Jay-Z sell $600 million in assets because he needs the money? I think hip-hop will always be a void for the people. Hey everybody, I'm Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, uh, all the way from California. How you doing, man? Yeah, man, we did a little... uh... You know, we might be talking about Eddie Murphy. We did a little trading places because for a lot of this podcast, you were in California and I was on the East Coast and now I'm out here and you're on the East Coast, man. I'm doing well. I, uh, I'm i keeping East Coast time. So usually in bed before midnight and up before the sun rises, which is, is kind of, it feels very mature, you know, <laughs> trying to age with grace here. Yeah, I was doing that, man. I was up at like taking my first meetings at six, just rolling straight out of bed, like, you know, 15 minutes before. Sometimes I take the first meetings in bed, you know, uh, yeah. but it's good. You got your afternoons, you can work out and like have your day for yourself. It's nice. Exactly, man. It's it's really nice up here and the weather's good. So I can't complain, man. I'm blessed. Yeah. Well, we are. What's the headline of podcast? Uh, I'm excited about today, man. It's been a it's been a crazy active couple of weeks since we've done this. You know, uh, I think one of the big things, um, if you talk about a two week span, Jay Z has had two of the biggest weeks in hip hop, and I don't think that you know it's been covered, but I don't think it's been covered, uh, you know, comprehensively and like seeing how the two transactions work together. You know, he sold. 50% of his stake in, um, you know, his alcohol company, uh, Champagne for Ace of Spades, to LVMH, uh, Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy. Um, and um, that was re- reported to be for uh, $295 million, I believe, for the uh, the first half of it. Um, let me check that number. But it was um, a ton of money. Um, so it, no, actually, it was uh, more than that. It was three fifteen because the total value of the company was uh, supposedly six hundred and thirty million dollars. So he sold fifty percent of that. Now all this is just reported, and we'll get right. to that in a minute. Because as a good friend of mine said, you can't believe any of these uh, any of these figures unless you saw the term sheet. You know, yeah. but you know the number being thrown out there is 630 million dollars uh, which would net Jay 315 million for his 50% um very smart deal if, if it's the case i believe because not only is he liquidating a substantial amount of cash but you know partnering with a company like that which has major distribution which has major marketing power allows that other 50% uh that he's retaining to really, really blossom. And, you know, if he decides to flip that in a few years, can probably sell it for as much as he would have sold the entire company um, if he'd done it now. You know, um, saw that back in the day. I used to work for a law firm and we represented Interscope. And, um, you know, when back in the, like, uh, this was like the um, mid-90s, you know, they were under hot water because, um, you know, all the gangster rap stuff was going on and Tom Warner was like under tremendous pressure from its shareholders to kind of divest of any anything like that based off the cop killer controversy. And Interscope sold, uh, you know, I won't get into the, I won't 
I won't say the actual numbers, but I'll say the numbers that were reported out there. They sold, they repurchased their 50% stake in, um, in, in the company from Time Warner for about $50 million. That's the number that was thrown out there. And six months later, they flipped that 50, same 50% to MCA for $250 million. Mm. So, um, you know, a, a few months or a few years can make a massive difference in valuation. So I don't think that this is, um, this is the, the end of how much money Jay is going to get for this transaction ultimately. But what were your thoughts when you, when you heard about it? Yeah, I mean, everything that you just said, I think it's great to have um, a team working as hard as you are. I'm, uh, you know, I've never been the type of person to order, you know, champagne in a club like that. But I, I think over the last 10 years, what Jay has done since, you know, stepping away from Cristal over, you know, racial and social remarks and building Ace of Spades, um, you know, into what it's been, you know, which he didn't start the company, but came in and and brought it to the, the hip hop profile and to, a, you know, several different generations. And I think now a deal like this allows, you know, Louis Vuitton to, as, as a parent company, to do the next work, which is make sure you see Ace of Spades everywhere, you know, globally. And I, I think that that'll just come back, like you said, at Jay's pocket in the end, whether he decides to sell or, you know, um, that that becomes something in the portfolio that that goes to uh, the, the children, you know? Yeah. And so then less than two weeks later, um, he's back in the news for selling title. And this one, you know, you know, I believe was a hundred percent of the assets or a substantial portion of the assets is definitely the majority of it. And he sold it to square, uh, which is a company that, uh, where the CEO is Jack Dorsey, also CEO of Twitter. Um, it's a, uh, a pay transaction company. They, they, they do, they do online payments and, um, was an interesting, uh, purchase, I believe, because I think it signals a different way of monetizing artist recordings. Um, you know, Tidal has definitely been the little brother uh, when it comes to streaming services, you know, Spotify and Apple being the two giants. Uh, you know, I think that Amazon and then um, Amazon and um, YouTube probably come in even after that, you know, and Tidal, I think, was like fourth or fifth, you know. Um, I think they reported to have something like a million paying subscribers or something like that. So definitely not something that um, is a juggernaut, but the number then, and again, same qualifiers, was reported to be $297 million. Now, I find that hard to believe because I think that, um, you know, just, you know, from the outside looking in, title is likely a service that struggled financially. Mm -hmm. um, it's very difficult for any streaming music service to make money um, because the recording um, licenses are so... Um, so difficult to sustain, you know, it's, it's not really a, a sustainable business, which is why you see companies like Spotify moving into podcasts because the margins are just much bigger than uh, depend, being dependent on the music. Um, you know, Tidal did some of that, that Rap Radar podcast. They had, um, you know, a lot of exclusive, you know, high quality video, but um, never really kind of gained that kind of traction, you know, even those things have, have kind of tapered off in frequency. So um, I'm not really sure that they were um, so financially successful. So it's very surprising to me that it would be, you know, $297 million. But what, what, what was your thought about that? The title one's a little different. I mean, I kind of look at it and I thought to myself, Jay, 
you know, may have taken this as far as it can go over. It hasn't quite been a decade, but, you know, throughout the 2010s, and we've seen a lot happen in the space. I mean, now we've, we've even watched in recent years when Jay's catalog left Spotify and other platforms to go exclusively to title. And it seems like a lot of the DSPs aren't doing things like that now. And when Jay decided like, Hey, let me put my catalog, let me not deprive the people and, and, and aired away from um, exclusivity. I kind of saw the writing on the wall that I don't know how far title can go. I think it's greatest asset was being black owned. I have heard a lot of folks say that title goes, you know, from a hip hop heads perspective, they go a bit further in terms of giving you the producer and kind of the, the liner notes that we lost in the physical world. Um, and I think the payouts are a little bit better, certainly than Spotify. Um, but I think that this move gives Jay a ton of capital um, and it also allows him to probably make a move that excites people in a way that I don't think title has in the last three or four years. Um, tell me if you disagree. Yeah, you know, um... Title started off as a really cool concept. You know, I remember the, the press event and it was like Madonna and J. Cole and Daft Punk. <laughs> all these artists on the same stage together, really signifying that it was going to be a service for uh, and by artists. And I thought that was cool, kind of resting control of their own product and monetization for themselves. I don't think it ever kind of lived up to that, that, that hype of the first press event, you know, um, there were some cool things like um, it was uh, reported to be higher fidelity. So for really, uh, you know, audio files, we wanted to have high quality streaming. Um, there was, you know, when Prince died, they were the only service to have his masters, although that was, you know, there's a controversy with that um, was the place where Jay dropped a lot of his music exclusively. It was the only place we could get lemonade, um, you know, digitally with, with the exception of iTunes. Um, there's some, been some real cool stuff, but just never really kind of like, um, grew into what I think people hoped it would become. Um, but that being said, supposedly Jay paid about $50 million for it when he bought it. And if he did sell it for anywhere close to $297 million, that's a major come up, you know? So, he just, he, he continues to be a businessman, you know, but this one surprises me because I would think um, he would have structured it similarly to the uh, the deal for Ace of Spades, because yep. I think that there is a potential like game changing model with Square, you know, so um, he's taking a board seat on Square. Uh, so perhaps, it, you know, it's involves some equity in that company, uh, but um one of the things that he and Jack Dorsey did together was they launched a cryptocurrency fund, a Bitcoin fund. Um, and, you know, over the last couple of weeks, there's been insanity happening in the cryptocurrency space as it relates to, to music. Um, I sent you a link, uh, song of the day last week for, um, it's spelled 3LAU. Uh, I think it's called, his name is Blau. He's a, a DJ, an electronic, electronica DJ. And he auctioned off some of his music um, with uh, as uh, NFTs. Are you familiar with NFTs? You've been reading up on it? A little bit, based on a couple links, one being the one you sent me. But for those out there that don't know, why don't you break it down? So NFT stands for non-fungible token. Um, so, uh, and I'm going to try to explain this because I'm still wrapping my head around it too. But I think most people are familiar with cryptocurrency now. It is, um, it's, it's built on the blockchain. 
the blockchain is interesting because it's a way of exchanging information in a decentralized way. It's not through like a set of servers owned by a company like an Amazon or a Google or someone like that. Uh, literally everyone's computer kind of contributes to um, the blockchain. And so it makes it really difficult to hack and also uh, decentralizes you know, transactions so that they're not tracked, they're not tracked, uh, or actually the blockchain allows you to uh, track it, but it's not um, owned by any particular entity. It's, it's like truly like decentralized. So um, the coins on this um, are, are numerous. There's Bitcoin, there's Monero, there's Ethereum, there's a bunch of different coins. Most people know Bitcoin and it's exploded in valuation over the last year. Um, you know, I think part of it is because the U.S. dollar is starting to get weak and pumped in like six trillion dollars in the economy in the last year, um, you know, and all these like uh, stimuluses for, you know, COVID and things like that. And um, the currency is starting to like fluctuate. And I think people are, uh, see inflation coming in. And so it's devaluing the dollar somewhat. So cryptocurrency is a natural thing that could be. Um, you know, a currency that's dependable and more stable and not dictated by a, a government or, you know, some other entity. Um, so I think the block that, that um, Bitcoin start to, to be uh, higher value because of that. Also, um, as we move into a more virtual world, um, just having a currency that is fully digital and, you know, unhackable, I think is, is also going to be beneficial to people. And so people are looking at that, but um Bitcoin is fungible in that um, if you think about a dollar, every dollar is the same, right? It's worth the same amount of money. Like I can give you a dollar, give me a dollar, and it's the same thing. Um, a non-fungible token is something that is unique. It's one of a kind. And so um, if you think about that Wu-Tang album that, that, that was sold for, you know, $2 million that Martin Shkreli uh, bought like, you know, four or five years ago or five, six years ago, whatever it was people are starting to look at music that way. So um, you can sell a unique asset. It could be a single recording. It could be a recording coupled with all sorts of cool stuff like um, Kings of Leon is releasing the first ever NFT album. And um, there are gonna be uh, like 10 or 15 of those where each one comes with like unique artwork. It comes with uh, the songs. It comes with uh, four guaranteed front row seats to every show of theirs, you know, forever. Um, uh, you get a car service to and from. When you come from the concert, like there's a bunch of merch, like in your car, you know, to go back to your hotel, you get a personal valet. That's nuts. Meet and greet with the band beforehand. Like it's uh, it's tied to a bunch of stuff. And so they're really going like OD on it because they want to show the value of music again, you know, and it's, it's, it's finally a time where it isn't really um, valued by the piece of plastic that it was on or the, the yeah. file it is, but for the art itself. And so I think it's a, it's a major, major uh, change, but this DJ um, Blau um, did an auction of, um, I think it was like uh, 11 or, or like 30, it was 30 uh, copies of uh, a song that he or an album that he that he put out and it was loaded up with different things artwork and stuff like that and the top three were like a, a gold circle and uh, so people would bid on it and every single time there was a new bid um, the clock would reset to 10 minutes uh, or four minutes and then it would start to count down there's a new bid it would reset and it kept going 
And this guy ended up netting like $12.6 million in about four or five hours for, you know, songs that are available. Um, you know, you can listen to it right now on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. But, you know, um, because they're unique and, and presumably uh, pieces of artwork that will um, appreciate in value over time, people were bidding insane amounts. Um, and it's not even necessarily about the music. It's about the, the historical nature yeah. happening now. And people are just um, betting that these tokens are going to, you know, increase in value like art. The NBA is doing it now, too. There's a thing called Top Shot where you can, um, you know, own like, you know, uh, a significant highlight. So like, think about like the LeBron uh, block of Iguodala or like, you know, MJ's like, you know, um, you know, changing hand shot. You can own that almost like a, like a, a digital version of like a, a card, but yeah, it's crazy. That's wild. I mean, I, I like the collectability factor of it. I think you and I, you know, it, it's hard for me to wrap my head around just as an old school physical product person, but I 100% love the idea of bringing value back to music. This can't just live in the cloud, you know, and, and actually OK Player this week did a really interesting story on like the, the, newly, the newly seen value of MP3s because, you know, last time you and I talked like Texas goes down off the grid. There may be a day where we can't access our music, you know, so the idea of having something live on a hard drive forever it has value in a way that we didn't think about even five or 10 years ago, but this is even more trustworthy. And when you describe that Kings of Leon situation, I mean, that's like the De La Soul, um, you know, Kickstarter where, you know, one of the prizes was to spend a day digging for records with Maceo. Like there's a, there's, there's a component in a virtual world that still has brick and mortar fandom to it, which is really cool. Yeah. So bringing that all the way back to title, um, if you think about a company like Square, which is doing payment processing, um, and Jay and Jack Dorsey have a cryptocurrency company, you could start to think about, huh, are they setting it up for artists to uh, be able to, you know, sell NFTs on title and be compensated in a completely different way? You know, SoundCloud just announced last week that they're going to uh, start to pay artists based on actual listens of their music as opposed to like just taking the whole like streaming universe and prorating it. And this is even a, a bigger step in terms of directly allowing artists to monetize in a digital way. Uh, so you could see that just being a, a complete game changer. And I mean, Jay-Z is a master of exclusivity. I mean, just the, you know, he's curated experiences that are really interesting and cool. Look at a B-side concert, look at, you know, the rock aware sneakers, look at, there's so many things you can go down the line and he's the king of that. And I think that, you know, the artists that he involves himself with at rock nation and, and his friends and collaborators, they can do that too. So you make a really interesting point when you get all those, you know, heads together to potentially drive virtual culture in a different way that monetizes artists, because that is the thing too. I mean, Jay began as an artist and every year, every, every December, we all kind of, I know I do. Like, I look forward to what I've listened to most. And you share that with the universe. And then the artists say, yeah, but we didn't make much money. Like, you might have listened to my song X amount of times, millions upon millions, but literally I made $10,000 from that. This is a way that keeps the artists happy, um, inspires the culture, and it keeps Jay again as he's been for, you know, uh, 25 plus years at, at the highest level of cool. Mm, yeah. 
For sure. Um, but it begs a question, you know, so if you believe these numbers, major come up for them, right? $600 million in two weeks. But why now? Yeah, I mean, I think you're savvier than I am at this. But I mean, you know, it, it, it probably is at a point where wherever the market is, and, and right now, it's, it's not in a great place. Um, gas prices are, I mean, we're, we're all dealing with, with volatilities. So I have to believe that Jay's advisors forewarned him and he made the move now. Um, and like you said, the fact that he's sitting on the board can see it through. I don't believe that Jay's having money issues, um, which I know could be the knee-jerk speculation. You think that's a knee-jerk speculation? Well, you know, so the interesting thing to me is, you know, so, you know, the question becomes, did Jay-Z sell $600 million in assets because he needs the money? And, you know, I wouldn't think that's the case given his financial status, you know, uh, a legit billionaire at this point. But in reading the New York Times article, um, one of the things they talked about was Rock Nation. Um, you know, and, you know, they said that um, he sold Ace of Spades amid a downturn in the entertainment industry caused by the pandemic that has affected some of Jay-Z's holdings. And then Jay is quoted as saying, I think Rock Nation will be fine. Uh, like all entertainment companies, it will eventually recover. You just have to be smart and prudent at a time like this. So that is what that was very, very um, telling to me. That's very surprising. You know, um, obviously, Rock Nation, Live Nation, any concert business has just been devastated, just destroyed over the last year. And, and you know, now, thankfully, you know, we're, um, we're, we're getting um, word that live music is coming back to New York and places like that, but it like really diminished capacity. And we have no idea like how many people are actually gonna turn up, but the concert business might not come back as we knew it for years, like if at all. And so you gotta think that that was a major financial hit for him. But like, so what, what, do, you, what do you think about that? You think, you think this was to show up Rock Nation? You know, that's a really good point. And, and it's easy to always remember the rock in, in rock nation, but forget about the nation. And you're right for a year and a half, things have been at a halt and including major festivals and all of that, which is going to affect income. But I believe in Jay's portfolio from what I understand of it, that, you know, he's still been doing well. Um, but this might have been a move perhaps to weather the storm. I just can't imagine an artist of his level, the highest level, you know, You've got Jay, Dre, Puff, 50. You've got that top tier um, in our culture. I can't see money trouble. I could see getting, accessing that capital to do something beyond our imagination, which I feel is like what happened when Jay made a play for the Nets, you know, and was involved in the Barclays Center and all of that. I don't know what the 2022 version of that is, but I sense it could be happening. That was one thing that I speculated in my mind more than, damn, you know, his, his hustle's a little bit messed up right now. Yeah, you know, um, I never, ever sleep on Jay. Every time people think that they, uh, that this dude has reached his highest, he goes, like, to a completely different level. And so uh, my speculation is, so I think it's too, I think, like, everything is complex, right? I do think that there are liquidity issues that have to be addressed for Rock Nation. I mean, um, they're a management company as well, uh, you know, and if their artists are not making the same kind of income that they typically would because everybody's been off the road, 
then that's a that's it's 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 a pretty significant hit. Like I gotta believe the cash flow for Rock Nation is not in a great place at this point, right? And so there's probably some of that. But I think that um Jay is probably gearing up to do something really, really big. Maybe it's in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, you know, Elon Musk just invested you know one point two billion dollars and bought one point two billion dollars in Bitcoin like I could see him saying, you know what, I got these assets and they're making money, but I can flip it and you know, put it in something else that's going to have exponential growth compared to what I had before. So I don't think we're going to know the true motivation behind this for uh, some time. You know, maybe it's going to be a few weeks, maybe it'd be a year or two, but I bet you uh, there's going to be a, a future episode of this podcast where we come back and close the loop and say, aha, you know what I yeah. mean? I, I feel that too. And, and, and going off of the great education you just provided on, you know, how artists and cryptocurrencies can merge, you know, one of the things that we are hearing a lot over the last year and a half is, is this the new normal? Are there going to be other pandemics? Are there going to be other disasters of this kind that literally stop business and the world as we know it? And does a move like this weather a potential future storm, if that's what our advisors are forecasting? Because to compensate art differently and artists differently in this time suddenly makes you know concerts and and performance which for a lot of artists is their biggest revenue stream it suddenly puts it back in the music and one thing that we've talked a lot about since we started this podcast one year ago this month was you know artists are releasing a ton of music but I don't know if that keeps their lights on proverbially yeah for sure I don't think that I think for artists to survive they have to go back to a place where their primary income is generated from the recordings, not from like, uh, not from touring, because like you said, touring is not guaranteed to come back to the levels that it did. Plus, you know, the reality is it's art. You know what I mean? Like, I think we started to treat music like commodities, uh, almost like pictures, but music is unique art. And it should be like people pay. It always blew me away that back in the days of like physical uh, goods, you had, uh, the same piece of round plastic, right, for three different uses. Um, it was basically the same thing for a DVD, uh, for a CD, and for a video game. A DVD was going to cost you, you know, 20 to $30. Uh, a video game was going to cost you 60 70 you know, even $80. A CD was, you know, $12 and started going down to $8.99 and, like, you know, and, and completely devalued, even though if you think about time spent, you watch a DVD once, right? A lot of people, a bunch of uh, DVDs in their shelves, they never even watched because they saw it in the theater and they thought they wanted to watch it again. They never did, right? Uh, For the video game, you know, for a good video game, maybe you play it, you know, 50 hours, something like that, you know? Um, But for a piece of music that you love, an album that you love, that's a lifetime, man. Like the the value of that should be... um, should correspond to like what it brings you and music has not has not done that and again i mean as you say that i think of the photo of jay with you know what was it like 50 copies of nipsey's mixtape you know and and again that statement that jay made seven or eight years ago of no like which was a totally different statement than wu-tang and martin screlly of like you want to charge a hundred dollars for a mixtape or or whatever it was at the time i'm going to support that because i see the value in that and maybe that's exactly what he's doing by walking away from title and into this deal with Square. And it's funny, like, I didn't even make that connection, but Square is something, you know, I bought a sandwich to go on Friday 
and you get an email, you know, your receipt, and that's all through Square. We're using it every day. So this is a big company. So, you know, I believe in that. And I think that you're absolutely right. We're going to be back on here, um, you know, with a little bit longer beards talking about why this was a right move. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, maybe it's a full circle moment. Like, uh, maybe I was wrong. Like, maybe he's delivering on the promise of uh, that, that press release or, or that, that press event where, you know, he's finally allowing artists to be compensated for their music uh, in a way that's supposed to be. So maybe he fulfilled it, you know. So you said, aha, I got to ask you, did you see Coming <laughs> to America? I haven't watched it yet, man. It's, it's on my list for today. Um, I'm going to watch it. Um, I'm going to go on with zero expectations you know, because, you know, I've started to hear chatter. Um, I was a bit concerned because I've listened to The Breakfast Club a couple of times. They saw it like a few weeks ago and neither Charlemagne nor Envy would say anything about it right yeah. now, it could have been embargoes and stuff like that preventing them but the way they did it was like they were like oh, i'm gonna let people you know judge for themselves they didn't want to like you know salt it but like you could tell that, that something was amiss you saw it i did i watched it one time on friday as it came out and um yeah i uh so you listen to breakfast club i listened to howard stern and robin quivers was just you know championing this they had arsenio hall on great interview um, I came into it with high expectations. We covered this a lot on AFH. I think we can agree that in the last two years, two, three years, Eddie Murphy's gotten him, his, his brand, his reputation, which arguably was never in question, but, you know, with what he did with Dolomite and, and, you know, the SNL kind of new chapter in the story, I think all systems looked that this would be a great film. And, um, yeah, it wasn't that for me. Um, I think that there's a there's a fun aspect of nostalgia. They got a lot of um, you know great callbacks to folks like you and I that love the original, but um, you know especially with with Kenya Barris involved and they had a big writing team. I personally just wanted a lot more from the script and the new characters that they introduce. Um, you know, veered in my opinion between very caricature. Um, you know, and, 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 and possibly, and I say this as a white guy, but possibly just really leaning into stereotypes in a way that was a bit cringy for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, and then just underdeveloped the new characters, but, you know, it's great to see Eddie and Arsenio and, you know, I won't spoil, you know, who all else is in there. Um, you know, there's some cameos and some musical cues and stuff like that. I'll be curious, you know, to hear your thoughts when you do see it. You know, it's interesting that, that you you, uh, you bring that up about the caricature. It's like, um, when I was a kid, loved Eddie Murphy. You know, uh, he was on SNL, like, you know, um, all the characters, Gumby, Mr. Robinson, um, you know, Buckwheat, you know, stuff like that. But my mom always hated him. Like, she <laughs> thought that he uh, was really um, catering the stereotypes in a way that was uh, really kind of detrimental to, to us, uh, you know, Black people. And... I didn't get it at the time as I've gotten older and you go back and you look at it, uh, the humor is very dated, you know, and um, I don't think it would be received in the same way. I much prefer a more nuanced uh, kind of uh, incisive approach to comedy, like what you get with like a Dave Chappelle or a Chris Rock, you know. Um, but, you know, it makes me think, you know, has, has Eddie's humor advanced or has it kind of been locked in time and, you know, it's a sequel. So like it's designed to be that way, but 
even stuff like Dolomite, you know, he's still kind of flexing like Eddie Murphy. But, but what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't place blame on Eddie with that. I know what you mean, especially as it applies to stand up. But at the same time, that's why the original coming to America to me is 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 just the highest watermark in Eddie's you know film career. I think that action movies like the Beverly Hills Cop franchise and 48 Hours are great. But I think, you know, I truly if I was to pick 10 incredible perfect movies you know the original coming to america is that you know my grandparents who would if they were alive today would be you know in their upper 80s you know white love the movie i mean it's 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 a shakespearean love story you know and i thought that they did that movie with so much care and class but at the same time you know you look at soul glow or you look at the mcdonald's mcdowell's jokes like it was it was also topical and it didn't, you know, it, it had Eddie's personality to it too. And I expected that for this sequel. And I don't know if it's a product of, you know, too many, um, you know, I saw that there was over five writers of the script, including Eddie, but I think Eddie gets credit for developing the characters in the original one and, you know, bringing John Landis in, I, you know, back, I, I just really expected a lot of it. And there's, um, and I heard Arsenio Hall say this too, you know, it's, it's kind of bittersweet to watch this movie in your living room. Um, this is one of the first times where the day it's come out during the pandemic, I had to see a film and to not be in a theater and hear the person two rows behind you laughing and kind of let that remind you why it's funny might be a detriment to this movie. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there's a lot of product placement. There's a lot of just kind of weird things. And I heard Arsenio tell Howard Stern that, you know, there was the temptation, of course, of where we are with the pandemic. You know, when I was in Texas last month, the theaters were open. So theaters are open in certain places in America. So could this film have waited three or four months to be in theaters and get, you know, get that, which I'm sure would have made it a lot more money. And Arsenio said, you know, there's so much topical stuff in here and it's not an evergreen comedy, which I believe the first one most certainly is. Interesting. You know, I saw the, the, the original in theater four times. Um, and the crazy wow. thing is two times were in English and two times were in French. You know, I saw it, uh, I was staying in, in France that summer and it was bugged out to see uh, Eddie Murphy, you know, the, the French Eddie Murphy voice. Um, and I had a friend who came over at the time who was French, came to America and she was like, oh, I didn't really like it so much because like his voice sounds really weird in English. Like, yeah. I was like, <laughs> that's his real voice. But she liked the, the French Eddie Murphy voice. But you're right. That that's the um, comedy is is the one place where I think having that communal experience is just it's just very different. I mean, laughter like in a group is it's much easier to like get laughter in a group than it is sitting at home by yourself or with one other person. So that's a really good point. Yeah, man. A lot of the uh, a lot of the film was uh, was shot in Rick Ross's uh, you know Atlanta mansion. I think the whole film may have been shot in in Atlanta, which is the new kind of Hollywood. Um, so on the subject of Rick Ross, I know one of the biggest musical releases of the week involves your man. And I know it's a song you really like. Don't tell, tell, uh, before we get to that, I okay. want to say there was another film that did come out that I was actually, that's a caught and was very, very pleased. Cause I'd heard, um, the opposite. I heard, well, I, again, I'd heard that, you know, uh, it's really good, but like, you know, it didn't do X, Y, and Z. Uh, but that was the biggie dot. I got a story to tell. Did you see that? Yeah, I watched it yesterday, and um, yeah, I was very, very pleased with it. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's just, it's just unbelievable. First of all, they had the presence of mind to be documenting him, like, this way, like, uh, first, I can't believe that 
so much of this tape has existed and not come out, you know, yeah. it's, it's a lot like uh, the last dance in that way, you know, um, yeah. but like, it feels like you really get to know who Christopher Wallace was, you know, in a way that we've never seen before. And I always thought that all the big stories that could be told, you know, had been told, but to his mom's point, this was not about his death. It wasn't even really about like um, his career so much as it was about like, how he became who who he was and how he became the notorious B.I.G. But I thought it was just phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm somebody like you that thought I had seen everything and not known everything, but known a lot about Biggie. And I was I was stunned by it. And I thought that, you know, shout out to D-Rock from Junior Mafia, who I believe was holding the camera on a lot of on a lot of the stuff that you see. But even down to you know, I'm, I'm fascinated that there's a recording of Biggie uh, and his man rapping to Africa by Toto, like the instrumental in what must be like 86, 87, that we've never heard that you get to hear some bars from. And to watch even that full Fulton Street freestyle, how many times from MTV ultrasound to behind the music to boom, 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 you've seen it everywhere, but I'd never seen the full part of the dude battling him first. Yeah. Um, I really, really appreciated that. I love that, you know, so often when Biggie's story is told, I think that one of the challenges is to, to get as many talking heads as possible. And, you know, Puffy was incredibly lucid, incredibly revealing on this, but I love that they had, you know, DJ 50 Grand and Mr. C and Easy Moby and, you know, Cease and, and D-Rock. You had a lot of folks um, really getting deserved airtime because they were the people around Biggie you know, from 1990, in some cases before into 95, 96. And, and you and I as hip hop heads, that's, that's the story I love, even more than what was this guy like, you know, after, you know, the success that he found in, you know, 95 and 96. Yeah, I mean, and I've been spending a lot more time in Brooklyn and Bed-Stuy in particular. And it's just amazing to see like his neighborhood, see, you know, um, how he moves, see the, the you know, they're guys I've never heard of before who were so like vital to him. Even the guy who was filming it, Damien, um, yeah. you know, like to see his real crew, like uh, just uh, unreal, you know, it's unbelievable. I love the maps too. I mean, and that's one of the things that I, I really think that we've tried to do with AFH and, you know, hip hop in now seems can seem very virtual, but, but folks belong to real blocks and those blocks have, you know, butterfly, butterfly effects of their career. So to watch, you know, the fact that Biggie lived here, Easy Moby lived here. And it's funny, even this morning I saw on Instagram, you know, DJ Premier pointed out that him and Guru, you know, were staying at Branford Marsalis's Brownstone, just a block or two away. And that's why even before Fane, even before The Source, you know, those guys were hanging out together, you know, smoking blunts and, and cracking 40s. And, and that's just so interesting to me. And to see, you know, Big's ties to Brownsville, East New York was interesting because, you know, later on that, you know, Big shouts out little fame, you know, on, on a verse, you know, we never saw MOP and it just got my mind racing. But the one thing that I thought was interesting above, above, all, above all others was Biggie's next door neighbor, um, Donald Harrison, who this morning I decided really? to listen to uh, some of his music. I mean, and I think the documentary may understate it. I mean, very accomplished jazz saxophonist worked with, you know, Art Blakey, um, Dr. John, Miles Davis. But what he said was so interesting to me of 
big delivering his lyrics like a jazz percussionist like mm -hmm. and then he mimics it in a way that i'm not going to attempt to but if you listen to machine gun funk or party and bullshit or any of those great records man you can hear it and that never no one ever put me onto that game before me either man that was a mate that was really crazy too uh, and they, they use that clip from the um the freestyle session he had with tupac and yeah put the drums to it uh that was crazy you know um we had that clip, that really cool clip of, um, you know, KRS, you know, talking with Rakim yeah. and, you know, Rakim breaking down how him being a saxophone player uh, and, and figuring out jazz is how he constructed his flow. And to, to know that Biggie had done that too, is just really incredible. I've been listening to a lot of jazz through the pandemic and yeah, Rakim modeled himself after Coltrane from the way, you know, Donald says that, you know, somebody like Max Roach was, you know, inspirational to Biggie. And it's just one more reminder why, uh, you know, sometimes jazz seems outdated to folks in the mainstream, but it influences all the culture. And I, I yeah, that really, really good documentary. It's something I'm going to watch again and again. And I was just flabbergasted um, checking that out last night. Yeah, you know, you talk about that clip, um, seeing that clip a bunch of times. I've never even seen a full Biggie rhyme from it, you know, so it was crazy just to see that. And, and like you said, to see the setup with, with uh, Supreme, like who was battling him too. But those kind of clips are the things that make MCs. And, um, you know, these days it's, it's become even more so. And Facebook launched a new app um, called Bars. Um, have, you, have you seen it? Have you played around with it yet? I haven't had the chance to, but I know you have, right? Yeah. It, it's it, So, um, what it does is it lets people it's got they've got like 400 like pre uh, produced beats by you know professional producers that people can freestyle over and they make it super easy for people to pick a beat you know kick uh kick some bars over it in like 15 you know 30 seconds and then like share it so it, it intends to be like the tiktok for uh for rapping for freestyling um I could easily see it becoming the way that like most MCs are discovered and like, you know, there's going to be a lot of 15, 30 second songs out there. Like, I think it's going to be massive, but um, you know, do you think that, do you think that something is lost in making it so easy? Do you think, think this is just technology and it's just like, you know, the way that, you know, producing has gotten more, has gotten easier and, and better. But what, what's your take on that? I know you, you tend to be a purist in these. these yeah, situations. I'm I'm a staunch conservative. I'm the <laughs> Mitch McConnell of hip hop with this because I'm also like, you know, not everyone deserves a microphone and not everyone. And that's been the challenge of the internet. But I also know when you say something like that, if you force, you know, great talent to live and die by the record deal or, you know, the cost of pressing their music, we might be denied a Kendrick Lamar. We might be denied you know, uh, a chance or whomever, you know, pick your favorite MC, a Benny, um, who, yeah, but, uh, you know, out of this, I'll be really surprised and I'll be, based on what you just told me, surprised given Facebook's demographics, if, you know, it's used differently than TikTok, like in the same way, but if it creates um, more of a leaning towards long form, you know, lyrical, spiritual, miracle, hip hop, that allows the next locksmith, Kendrick, your next, you know, pick a great MC to come out of it. I'm all the way on board, but I'm going to be the type of person that probably relies on thousands of other people to, to vet the talent and tell me what's good than me, you know, dig and find, which I know a lot of folks enjoy on SoundCloud and other apps. 
Yeah, you know, I think it's going to yield. It's going to speak to a different audience, you know, than our audience. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's a real audience for it. Like, I think it's you know similar to meme culture or any of the kind of like short form content that's really percolating now. Um, yeah, a lot. Of, there's a lot of talent that'll come out, like um, like Vine. Like, you know, people talk about TikTok, but TikTok to me is just Vine kind of recreated. You know, uh, I think that there's a true art to creating like a 15 second like you know clip that tells a story that like you know that entertains that you know and i think we're going to have some people like I, one of my favorite projects from a couple of years ago was tierra wax um yeah i think it was a 15 minute album um you know yeah. songs you know one minute each i thought it was just brilliant the way that she did it the visuals like the songs like everything was just like so next level and so I appreciate that. And I think there's going to be some great, you know, some great 15 second stuff. Like I wouldn't be surprised if you and I are sending each other a couple of clips, like within the next few months or so, you know, yeah. so I'm, I'm excited. I think there's going to be a ton of junk too. Like you said, uh, we're going to have to sort through and, you know, but I think there's going to be some great stuff too. Tierra is a absolutely phenomenal example of that too, because I know that she was, you know, making moves in the streets of Philly and, you know, making traction, but she used the tools at her access um, to break, you know, to cut through in a lasting way. And that's the highest caliber of creativity. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm here for more of it. And I have no doubt you read my mind, like, yo, we're going to be, you know, saying, you know, check this out. So, yeah. So Facebook was in the news for other stuff too. You, you put me onto this one. You want to break that down? Um, yeah. Oh, so Facebook is now, um, the billboard charts are now going to take Facebook views into consideration. And the first thought out of my mind, and, and maybe this is arrogance or ego is I'm like, damn, you know, AFH, um, because, you know, I think that, you know, something you built and, and I worked at for seven years and, and helped mold, we were really able to create a channel for artists that weren't necessarily winning in the traditional ways that billboard measures, you know, streams or, or anything like, you know, hand-to-hand -hand units. I'm glad to see this. Um, now, the question I have at it is, you know, is Facebook enough? If you're going to do that, should you be considering, you know, Twitter video or, or TikTok or other things? But I do like the fact that it, it takes the charts as we know them a bit away from being an old boys club, which I know it's been since the beginning of time. Yeah. You know, so user generated content is not included. Um, it's only professionally, it's only actual like official music videos. You and I know better than most that like views on Facebook are, you know, not all the, that it might appear to be, you know, a, a lot of views on Facebook are, three seconds or less, you yeah. know? So what's your take on that? Because to me, it seems like it could be kind of gamed a little bit and it's not like, it's not a real view. Like you know, I don't, I'm, I'm uh, concerned about it counting, you know? This is different. I mean, I think again, to the content point, there's so much content out there that we are all just tuning in and tuning out of, but a music video um, tends to be more. It's not the whole stream, but I looked at it <clears throat> and, and I hope this isn't sharing too much, but I think it was around 2016 or 17 we, with permission from Master Killer and his management, put a video up. Um, it got over a million views over, over a very short period of time. You might remember how much specifically. And I know that can ha happen on YouTube, and I'm sure that it does. But it lets you know that there's an audience there. And I don't think people are tuning in um, just for 10 seconds. You know, it's different than a conversation or a clip of somebody falling down or something, you know, 
sexy or somebody getting punched in the face. Music is different. And again, I think of that example and I'm like, damn, I want, I want the master killers of the world or the Tierra Wax of the world to be able to compete with all of these folks that have other ways of, of getting out because like it or not, the billboard charts are still something that dictates, you know, booking values for shows. A lot of radio airplay is, is you know, modeled around it. And again, I just want to see the play, the playing field leveled in hip hop. Well, you know, I've had, this has been an ongoing debate for us, right? Because I, I don't think that the charts are nearly as important as they used to be. You know, I don't think they're, they're they reflect what's real, especially when you think about radio, man, like I take my son to school, like, you know, multiple days a week. And I hear the same three songs every single day. And it's so, you're talking terrestrial, right? Yeah, yeah, like, like FM radio. And it, it's so obvious that, like, um, it's promo. Like, you know, it's, uh, you know, I don't want to go as far as saying it's being paid for, but it's clear that, like, you know, there is a budget behind it, you know. Um, and it, it, it's not real. There's no way that people want to hear the same three songs, like, that many times. And so... I question the validity of it versus like, um, you know, Spotify streams or SoundCloud streams or whatever it might be that I think yeah. are, are true indicators of what people are listening to. And often that stuff is, you know, a year ahead of the radio. The radio is like still playing songs from like 2019. It's insane, you know, so. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of everything because I see Spotify numbers and SoundCloud numbers that are bought too. I mean, you can, as, as, as we've seen, you can buy people in you know other countries to just stream that stuff to get the numbers up i do think you know as we talk about jay-z and where the revenue is so much in hip-hop is about branding partnerships licensing and you know if you sit on the board at you know a company that doesn't necessarily have the keenest sense of culture that is one of the ways that matters i mean it's sort of like the grammy awards do the grammys really judge hip-hop in a way that that is written in the you know, sands of time. I don't think so, but I guarantee you, if Royce the Five Nine wins the Grammy, that levels him up to hopefully go get more, you know, more sponsorship deals, more licensing deals, all of that. So I kind of play by the devil's rules a little bit, and again, I see the good in this. That hopefully it allows. Again, I'll use those examples like the Master Killer, the Tierra Whack, to compete, um, and it makes me salivate because with AFH, I know how dedicated we were to curating properly. And I know how much our audience trusted us because of that, where when we shared a long form video over Facebook, um, you know, they tended to tune in, especially when it was an artist that they believed in and had history with. Mm. All right. Well, you know, I'm always for anything that can benefit, um, you know, artists, especially the artists that, that we support, you know, tend yeah. to be more independent on their grind. So I hope it's a good thing. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think the more data points, the better, you know, so so I think that's good, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, so you, you you referenced some new music earlier. Um, you, you got your second favorite rapper, The Logic. <laughs> <laughs> Drake put out some music, uh, Scary Hours too. Like, you know, this dude, man, he he just we we had a a podcast devoted to just uh, just like how exceptional his run has been. Um, you know, I got a lot of heat because uh, I've said and argued. Even Royce, I think, who you mentioned, came at came at it a little bit um, that Drake is bigger than Michael Jackson. You know, I still mm -hmm. think that what he's been able to do, first of all, for you know 
10, 12 years now, like um, in a world that is like just so fragmented in terms of like, you know, media consumption and distribution, it's just, it's, it's, un, it's unprecedented. Like no one has ever done anything like this before, but like part of that is because he doesn't wait to, you know, to drop full albums. You know, he's got this album coming, uh, certified. Um, Lover Boy, right? Yeah, um, sometime pretty soon. But that doesn't stop him from dropping a three pack on people just to like, you know, keep the streets like heated. And so he dropped Scary Hours too. Um, Digital Academics had kind of like signaled that it was coming. I think a lot of people thought it was going to be the album, but it was this three pack. Um, and it's got a song What's Next, uh, Wants and Needs featuring Lil Baby, um, which I like both of those. Those are not really for our audience. And so I didn't include them on the playlist, but like, you know, it's Drake keeping his sound updated uh, to me and Lemon Pepper Freestyle, which, you know, I love Drake. You know, our audience like gives us a lot of flack for covering Drake, you know, but whenever Drake spits, like when he rhymes, like people, it's always one of our biggest posts, you know, and the guy with Ross is just magical. You know, uh, they got so many bangers. Uh, I'm going to put together a Ross and Drake playlist. Just, you know, they got, I think, 13 collabs at this point. And people are talking about they need to do a full-blown album. LeBron James said they were undefeated. He said they were 82-0, 16-0 in the playoffs. And uh, Kyle Kuzma has said they're the Jordy, Jordan and Pippen of, uh, of hip-hop. He was like, nah, they're the KD and Steph. They don't miss. Uh, and so, um, you know, but, but that, that song, when I first heard Ross's voice, I was like, okay, cool. It's not, he didn't sound as in pocket as I'm used to hearing Ross sound. Um, but when I played it again, a few times, I was like, okay, it's dope. But, but Drake blacked out for like three minutes on it. Just, just went ham. So, uh, but what was your take as, as the resident Drake hater? (laughs) No, man. I mean, over the years, especially working, you know, alongside you, I've, I fully believe Drake has gotten better with time. And I think that, you know, I don't know of an MC, even Kendrick, that people hang on every bar. I think Jay had that effect for a while, but I think Drake, people, every look, single look, bar. Now you're going a little bit too far. You bring Kendrick's name. Man. You keep. keep, keep <laughs> hey, man, I didn't say me, but I said people, you know, like I've heard folks say that Drake writes every bar like it could be, you know, a social media caption. Um, and he's he's the king of that. I I, I like Scary Hours too. I don't think any of it, you know, delighted me maybe the way that it did for you. And I think that I agree that these two have a great chemistry, but I'm going to say something that I believe that it, that might be inflammatory to you. I think their best collaboration to date is more than 10 years old with, you know, Aston Martin Music. Um, to me, that showed the real potential these guys have together. And a lot of what they do year in and year out with these Lucys and features on each other's albums it all kind of gets a little bit lost in the lights for me um and I thought that you know Ross does what Ross does you know the Tupac hit him up Machiavelli like you know that wordplay I just feel like I've heard it so many times and then Drake talking about you know picking his kids up from school and you know flirting with the other moms like it's just not for me asking me do I know Beyonce of course like yo but you got to give it up, man. His bars are just, we, we talk about authenticity and like, you know, being real. Like I said this too, man, there are, there are very few rappers who are more real than Drake. Like, you know, he, he talks about his life for real, you know, and um, 
that kind of stuff, those kind of details are just hilarious to me. You know, no one else is, is talking about that. Like he acknowledges the fame, but he incorporates it, incorporates it in the everyday lifestyle. Like, you know, like, like going to his high school reunion and, you know, making everyone like go through security clearance and stuff like that. Like, those are things, man, that um, the, just the details, it's, it's almost like, like Chappelle level art to me. You know, what, what makes it great is those little bitty nuggets, you know, that like really make it vivid and, and paint a picture for you. And so that's why I like Drake and the wordplay is crazy. I think his flow is insane. I agree with you. It's not their best collab. Um, you know, to me, I almost look at it like I, I could actually live without Ross's verse on this. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I think it would have played better just as a Drake song and it would have been like, um, diplomatic immunity or you know some of those other songs where he just like just spazzes for like three minutes and like and is out or one of the you know you know blank time in calabasas or, or wherever like to me it was that kind of freestyle and uh super dope because because i just love when drake spits like that but aston martin music uh to me is is one of the best songs of that decade period yeah. in, in, in hip-hop um and it's really the beat like too like justice league one of my favorite posts to date still, I posted this back in like, I think 2011 or maybe even 2010, man. Decatur Dan um, did this video in black and white where he shot the Justice League in the studio and they were breaking down the making of Aston Martin music. Do you remember? Did you watch that back in the day? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Might have even been on like Vimeo or something. Yeah. It was on Vimeo, word. And it's still in sight. Um, and, um, you know, they break down like every element and they start out with like the, you know, the, the, uh, the strings and like, uh, you know, the violins and like, you know, the, the dark chords. And it's just, it's so amazing. And then when they finally throw that beat in there, it's like, Oh man, this shit is so hard, you know? So, um, it's hard. It, it, it's not a major statement to say it's not as good as Aston Martin. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, you know? Um, but I like it for what it is. I like it for what it is. Yeah. And I, I think you make a really good point. You know, Drake, as much as any artist takes the ball and shoots it. You know what I mean? Like he puts, and we've spoken about this before, but he puts his reputation on the line all the time. And he does that musically. And then he does it in a way that's really innovative with, you know, trolling, including himself. I mean, even in the certified lover boy, you know, getting the, the heart, you know, in his hair, Um, Drake, he knows how to drive culture in a way that I think is even better than Kanye at this point. And he, in, in spite of it all, never seems to take a giant L. Like now looking back, you know, I think, I think Pusha, you know, had the last word in that beef, but I think that Drake, you know, he, he wasn't ethered. He wasn't ended. And, you know, he's still here and he's still driving culture and you got to give it up to him for that, especially when there's so many great MCs that we want to see put out music more frequently of substance and they're just not doing it. And Drake does it you know seasonally so yeah and he, he's so smart too like the song uh the, the the three pack to me speaks to two maybe three different bases you know the mm-hmm. first song is kind of like i think uh you know his era like the migos type era you know um like the 2010s um the second song is like very much 2020s with little baby and like he's, he's getting with that new crop of mcs and then the third um, is Lemon Pepper Freestyle is speaking to the older heads, you know, like um, like my generation, dudes who are really focused on the lyricism, you know. And it wouldn't surprise me if the first single from the album is just a straight ballad, like, you know, a song for the, for, for women, you know, or, yeah. or singing. So 
dude is very strategic, you know, it's very tactical in what he does. It's not an accident, you know. You I feel that. Him. Yeah. And and you know, he's done some interesting things this year and in late last, just like collaborations with Dirk and Draco the roller, like Drake finds a way, and Jay did this throughout the 2000s, you know, when he was hopping on different remixes and stuff like that. And, you know, I think that Jay did it with Drake and I think he did it with Rick Ross, but, you know, Drake shows himself to be a chameleon musically while still being authentic to his brand, his story, his lifestyle. Um, and it's, you, you cannot knock the guy. And I mean, we're joking that I'm a Drake hater. The song didn't change my week, but it's one that I added to my best of 2021 playlist, which I think by the end of the year, we'll have several hundred songs because that's just the type of year it's been. Yeah, no, it's been a great year so far. Uh, well, so other news, um, two entities that we've both been fans of over the years. I think uh, you you are more knowledgeable about one and I, I'm more not, may, probably more knowledgeable about the other uh, just because I work directly with him. Um, you know, have come together, uh, you know, so you know, Ross has MMG, Maybach Music Group, and Ross had a, an artist named Stiley who was on MMG for a while, which I think was a head scratch for both of us because, you know, Stiley's ethos of Blue Collar Gang was so kind of um, different than the materialism and like, you know, the gangsterism that, you know, is often found in Ross's music. He's a very conscious dude. Um, um, what was the, uh, his tagline was, uh, um, Oh, man, I'm forgetting it, but uh, intelligent trunk music. Intelligent <laughs> yeah, trunk, yeah, uh, was his, was his model back in the day. Um, he's now off of MMG, um, you know, Maybach Music Group, and on another MMG, Mellow Music Group, which uh, you've worked with extensively. So you want to talk about what that label has been, and like, you know, some of the artists have been featured over the years. Yeah, I mean, uh, so Mellow Music Group, it doesn't necessarily even matter where they're based, but you know, for the sake of, they're based in Arizona. It's founded by a guy named Mike Toll, um, who we did an interview with, um, and they they started right around 2010, maybe a little bit before that. And in the early years, you know, they came with really what I think of as two producers, Odyssey and Apollo Brown and what they did with both of those guys and some others were projects where they would pair, you know, really talented producers, these guys with great MCs. And out of that, you know, we've gotten, you know, the OC trophies album with Apollo, the blasphemy album with Razkaz and Apollo um, Odyssey, you know, produced, um, he brought out his diamond district, you know, a crew of MCs that he had been working with in DC host of other projects. And they've done some really interesting things. But one thing that I'll say about them is over the last decade, they continue to level up. I mean, out of them, we've gotten, um, you know, the uh, Pete Rock and Sky Zoo Retropolitan Project, which I know you and I, you know, adored. And, you know, Apollo's done stuff with Joel, with Sky Zoo. Um, and they can also be a home for journeymen in hip hop and journey women, um, you know, uh, Big Poo and Knots. Um, you know, just, just different folks that are maybe in, in a transition and want to make an album that they want to make and this label supports them at it. So, you know, you're absolutely right to see Stolly go from the major label system, which I think brought him, you know, a nice response, but probably not one that's reflective of his skills and abilities. And he's, he's bounced around and done a bunch of indie projects, but I'm glad to see him with Mellow because, they really take their time. And I think that they succeed in a singles driven culture at making great albums. Um, so this one raised my eyebrows big time. 
Yeah, no, I think it's a really great synergy. I think the brands fit really well. The aesthetics fit really well. Um, I think they'll let him do what he does and he'll be true to his art, but they'll be able to support it in ways that, that um, major label systems haven't. You know, I've been a big fan of his since 2010. You know, he dropped his album, his uh, mixtape, Lincoln Way Nights, back then. And I supported him on a number of levels. You know, I've always uh, supported him through AFH. I've done... Um, I think a couple of interviews with him and that, you know, are on our YouTube channel uh, from way back when, um, you know, I uh, made him a music matters um, artist for BT uh, emerging artist platform. We had that had like Kendrick and big Sean and Marsha Ambrosius and uh, a, an artist named Gabby Wilson who became her. And like, you know, uh, lots of people like that. Um, you know, we did a tour with Stally and we put together a tour that had, uh, Kendrick, uh, J-Rock, Absol, Schoolboy Q, and Stally. So TDE, mm. Black Hippie, and Stally. Uh, it was a national tour. Um, you know, I think the first national tour for TDE and, and maybe for Stally too. Uh, so, you know, been a big fan, big supporter for many years. Um, happy to see him still doing it, you know, because um, it's, it's hard for an artist, especially as we talked about now when you can't tour and get that bag. But uh, I was just excited to to see this partnership and really um, am looking forward to hearing the music. Stolly deserves way more credit too. I mean, I don't love this term, especially because I never worked at a blog, but people talk about blog rap and blog era rap. And out of that, you know, you got your cool kids and your pack divs and your, you know, in my opinion, you get your crits and your cools and your Kendricks out of that on and on and on. And Stolly came out of that movement and he's still here and he came out of it from, uh, you know, Massillon, Ohio, which isn't that far from where I grew up in Pittsburgh. And, you know, I think Rick Ross has done great things for Meek Mill and he's done, you know, great things with Wale. But I often look at Pill, who, you know, came up under Killer Mike and went to MMG. And I look at Stolly and I don't know, and Gunplay, and I don't know that they got the, the benefit of that moment. So to see Stolly doing it, and I personally believe he's making some of the best music in his career. He, um, I think in 2019, put a project out with the producer Jansport J and we premiered a song or two on that. It released on nature sounds, which is another, you know, great indie label that's weathered 20 years of this. Um, so I'm, I'm happy. I'm eager for more music and Mello's putting out a compilation too. Um, and they have a joint with, um, with Stolly, Joel Ortiz, um, a bunch of people and alchemist is involved in the album, you know, their whole roster. So it's an exciting time. And I salute Mello and Mike and, and all those folks over there, Matt Conaway and, the whole team that that's behind it, because I think 2021 will be another great year for that movement. Where, well, you mentioned other new music earlier. Is there anything that came out us uh, that came out during the week that like kind of caught your attention? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I got to hear your take on it too. Um, you know, you and I are both huge Anderson Pack fans, but we got the first taste of this project with him and Bruno Mars. Yeah. Silk Sonic. Uh, I watched an interview with them too. They have the breakfast club. It was real cool watching them, man. They got a great chemistry. You know, they play off each other. I think um, with Charlemagne and said, it's almost like an eighties buddy cop movie, you know, where, um, you know, they kind of like pick up where the other one left and they, you know, joke with each other and, it was real cool. The song was okay to me, you know, um, to me, it, I think it was probably an intentional, less like managed expectations by easing into this. You know, I was surprised that they went with a, a slower tempo song, mm-hmm. given how funky both those dudes are. But I think the next one's going to be a, su- a super banger, you know, so I'm going to wait, you know, be patient yeah. and hear it in a proper context. I got to listen to it a few more times, but I'm very excited about the project. Those are two of my favorite artists, two, two of the best live performers I've seen 
in you know the last 10 years like um two musicians two dudes who can really sing and bring that soul and funk from like the you know 70s 80s like I think it's going to be a real killer project. But what what did you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I really like what you said about the song. And now that I think about it, you know, um, Anderson, who's, you know, I would say probably my favorite, you know, artist that really got on my radar in the second half of the 2010s. Um, you know, I don't think in the last two or three projects, he's necessarily picked the greatest singles. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed his projects, but even Bubbling, which won a Grammy, was not my joint. I thought it had a really cool video. So maybe this isn't that. And I think you're right. They'll come back with something that maximizes what it means to have these two guys together. And certainly, you know, Anderson's a star and uh, becoming more and more of a household name. But I hope when this album is said and done, you know, he is at that upper echelon level. You know, he could benefit a lot from the spotlight that Bruno brings. And uh, I have no doubt, man, when the world opens up, we'll be hearing this song, you know, hearing these collaborations, you know, in Target and everywhere else. Yeah, and live, I think they'll, they'll yeah. talk about it too. You know, it's interesting you say that about um, his singles because they talk about that explicitly in the interview. Like Anderson, they talk, they break down each other's their their own like uh, strengths and weaknesses and what the other one brings to the table for them. And you know, Anderson talks about how he you know can kind of go left sometimes and not really um, hone in on on you know what makes the song like great. And but Bruno was just locked in, like and mm. like just really methodical and, and precise about making sure that every single note counts and is is moving in the, the direction the song should go. And so um, you know, it's, it sounds like he's been able to craft better songs for Anderson. And I think that that I think I do, you know, because like you know, he was one of my favorite artists with um, with Venice and Malibu. I think are, are two of my favorite yeah. albums of the last decade. But then after that, like, you know, it was hit or miss. Um, there's songs like Tense, which I think is incredible. Um, King James, which I just listened to yesterday too, just to, just a jam, but like uh, other stuff that's just like, ah, you know, so I'm, yeah. I'm hopeful that, that Bruno will help help with that too. You know, you, know, you mentioned, um, you know, Drake and Ross and, and now Bruno and Anderson. I think we're, I think 2021 is an incredible year in the underground and that's nothing new. I mean, you just talked about Stolly, which I don't know if he quite fits my definition of underground. I think he's more established than that, but there's some really um, just cool stuff coming out on a consistent basis. Um, so I had talked about on our last podcast, um, DJ Muggs, you know, who's been incredibly prolific. And he just put out a joint with a Brooklyn rapper, Rome Streets, who was on Static Selector's album last year. We talked to Static about him called Death and the Magician. And, you know, if you like grimy, hardcore, you know, those drums and just really sinister street themes, incredible listen. Um, I really spent a lot of time this week. So Conway, another hugely prolific artist, he partnered with Big Ghost, who folks may know from Twitter, um, prominent producer. He's worked with a lot of the Griselda guys and other folks in the New York and LA underground, but they put out an album this year called, if it bleeds, it can be killed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think Benny has a phenomenal ear for production gun too. This is some of my favorite production that Conway's found. And for anybody that just thinks of big ghost as like a, a Twitter personality back in the day, Yo, his chops, um, you know, are, are really, really impressive on this. And then also, you know, kind of in the same scene, um, there's an artist, Red Inf, and he put out a project produced by Vanderslice called Revenge of the Have-Nots. 
those three albums um, all came out, you know, in the last couple of weeks. I just think that, you know, we're watching a lot of the impact of Rock Marciano, Griselda, um, you know, Willie the Kid, a lot of these guys that put in work over the last decade, it's created a really nice space. And, and certainly Muggs has been a leader in that too. Mm, that sounds dope. You know, one of the, my favorite songs that came out in the week, we got the Okie Doke on, um, you know, <laughs> teed it up, uh, you know, had it at the top of the playlist, did a, did a, a Facebook post, and then it got pulled. But it's actually a, um, a song, uh, I believe, from the, the Roots Do You Want More sessions uh, from back in the day. Um, they're putting out the deluxe version of that album soon. Um, and, um, you know, it's Black Thought rhyming with like dead on impersonations of Guru, Pete Rock, Cool G Rap, Q-Tip, Ice Cube, Chuck D, ODB, and Busta Rhymes and more. And just just kills it, just absolutely destroys it. Um, and it got pulled. But um, I'm hoping that like, you know, it's just, you know, they uh, want to release it with the album um, instead of like, you know, there being some sort of rights issues or something like that. But like... Um, but that was, I was, and other people were excited about that too. So. Yeah. I, I thought it was really cool. Um, you know, we remember, you know, in the early two thousands, you know, black thought, even during the, um, you know, it happens with Kane and G rap during Chappelle's block party, but that song, if I'm not mistaken, was when he kind of flipped into G rap mode and then Kane mode. Um, so to hear this, I didn't, you know, I, I've probably seen the roots more than any other hip hop artists in terms of concerts. You know, I've lived in Philadelphia a lot of my life. I didn't know about this record um, and I saw you and I have a drink bet on it. And I believe I owe you at least a drink. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I saw John Morrison who has another hip hop podcast, serious rap shit. And he, um, you know, he, he bigged it up and, and said he's heard Questlove allude to this song for years. And, you know, it's a testament to black thoughts talent. I think it's a really cool, like some of those shock me that it's him. But I also there's part of me that's just like, man, thought you are one of the true goats. And it's it's more of a novelty song for me than um, which is kind of like how I feel about um, Ghost Rider by Skills or, you know, there's other songs out there like that that are cool in theory, but not something I necessarily play and, and lean back to. I only got to hear it three times before it got pulled. So we'll see for sure when it really comes out. But it's dope to know that there's things that you don't know about, you know, some of your favorite groups that are, that are in existence and coming out. Yeah. More word. And that's definitely one of my favorite albums from that era. Um, probably still my favorite album by the roots, either that mm. or um, things fall apart, but um, I'm excited, excited to hear it. whenever there's new music or, you know, unreleased music from uh, groups like that. I, I actually love these deluxe versions that are coming out. Like there's a lot of Prince music out there now from, you know, um, different albums and it's cool man this is great i think it's a great time for a music fan yeah i want to see that and again it, it speaks to what you said at the top with the potential of cryptocurrencies and stuff like that i just want to see it valued you know my favorite label was death row and i think they were 10 years too early in this because when they were changing ownership they put out a lot of stuff in the vaults but they didn't do it with the amplification that it deserved and um to watch stuff like this happen and, and that's why i feel it got pulled i mean you and i Part of the bet was I saw that Stro Elliott was in on the credits and people may know him from Ruckus and the percussions, but he's been in the roots for the last decade, just about. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is new. This is at least of the last decade, but it doesn't make sense, especially given what an audiophile Questlove is 
to put that in with the re-release of this. So I'm always happy to buy you a drink, man. <laughs> I'm always happy to take it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, what's your song of the week? You know, I'm going to give it, you know, to uh, Chino XL, which I think is a really talented artist um, that either because of Tupac confusion or whatever else people still sleep on, you know, 30 years later, 25 years later. And he put out a joint produced by Madlib on Madlib's label that I really liked. And it's called God's Interest So Fresh. And, you know, people forget Rick Rubin signed Chino to Deaf American and he put out that, you know, first album. But it's just a great reminder on what a talented MC he is and why his skills have only gotten sharper. And to hear him with Madlib, peak Madlib production, man, I'm here for it. Mm, that's dope. I'm going to go with uh, Fat Joe Sunshine. You know, a uh, song came out a few weeks ago. Um, just a real, just a dope groove. Like, uh, it's Joe being Joe. And I think I think he's slept on, man. That guy, to have been around for as long as he has, and he, he, he tends to pull out a hit every year, like a yeah. real su- super banger, you know. And, have, you know, coming from, like, hardcore underground, like, hard scrabble, he was much more in the biggie vein, uh, you know, or, like, early biggie, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, but for him to like have, you know, persisted for this long and, and stayed relevant, but it's him. Khaled's got ad-libs in there that are, that are funny, uh, but dope. And then um, Rihanna on the vocals too. And it makes you, um, makes you realize how much, well, me at least, I miss hearing Rihanna's music, man. Love her. Like, uh, it's just such a groove, you know? That song is, is, is easily my, you know, if I just can run out of a burning building and I'm taking one song from 2021 with me, that's the joint. And you really, I'd heard, I'd heard clips of it, but I didn't know where it lived. Because what's so interesting about that record is it's a mashup. It's a Luther Vandross mashup with a Rihanna remix, I believe by Kay Trinata. So from what I understand, and I heard this on, on the Budden podcast, I, I think a DJ had created that as part of his playlist, a young guy too. Oh, and then wow. Khaled came in from what I understand and, and really kind of added that level of polish to it. And you're right. It's, it's less than three minutes. You know, I know we're not in the clubs and partying like we were in 2019 and, and I haven't been in, in a minute, but to me, it just brings the joy of a club or, you know, a beach party or something like that. Phenomenal, phenomenal record. And yeah, man, Joe's staying power and versatility uh, are, are nuts. And I've always found Joe to be just a super dope individual, too. And he yeah. doesn't he doesn't forget his DITC roots either. Word, word, true. Very true. Well, yeah, man, this is dope. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, good to see you. Glad you set up. Um, and yeah, until the next time. Until we do it again, man. All right. Peace. Later.